Stop, this is Akeen. I'm Steve, and he's back on his post-colonial bullshit. It's Adam Myros. Hello, Steve. How, how did we get this slate this week? I, everybody's like, oh boy, part one of Ringo Lamb. I can't wait for part two of Ringo Lamb. And here we are. What's, what's going on, man? Well, I'm writing something. Uh, I don't want to get too into the details because I'm, I'm not uh, a seasoned, competent writer. So, you know, this idea gets out of the world. Somebody who knows what they're doing could just uh, take it and, and write something functional. But uh, it, is, it does involve uh, post-colonial Africa. We'll, we'll say that. Jesus. Uh, Jack, what are your thoughts on Adam Myros, uh, hijacking this podcast for his little Joseph Conrad fantasy? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there's a lot of stories to be told about Africa, uh, you know, in the wake of so much European yeah. intervention. And I think that and Adam Myros is, it, right? is the man <laughs> to do it. Absolutely. I, who else? Is the guy. You see him from across the bar do you think there's the man to tell us about Africa and what's good for her. Mm-hmm. You know, a few years ago, we watched Out Africa, and he said, no way, I want to get back in. Let's get over there. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I recognize this as a potential uh, thorny issue, but uh, that's why I'm writing it now. Uh, there's no real repercussions to if I uh, write something <laughs> spectacularly offensive, and uh, yeah, that's fine. I, I, I really just want to play with it uh, from exactly the wrong perspective, you know, this sort of... Uh, that's why we're looking at these, because I want to see what Hollywood did uh, in portraying this era and uh, area of the world in uh, a, a monstrous sort of sense that I, I will indeed be attempting to sort of replicate, uh, not, That's good. not shy away from. <laughs> it's good. You know, anytime I sit down to write something, I always ask myself, how can I replicate the uh, global racial politics of the late 1960s and early 1970s? Yeah, I mean, it's and a, let's do it. It's a standard every <laughs> every week. We a little a little glimpse behind the, the curtains of Optimus vaccine. Every single week, we have to edit out the part where where Amiris goes on a rant about how all of the films just lack violence against black bodies. And um, <laughs> so this this week, we're we're just leaving it in. We're dedicating the whole pod to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird because a lot of people don't know Myros is he's he's independently wealthy, but he lives a very modest lifestyle because he can't stop spending all of his excess cash on blood diamonds. The guy can't get enough. He's practically fucking swimming in them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I'm game for talking about these. So I, I guess we'll start with a little TV movie. Uh, that you chose here and by little i mean not little at all it's two and a half hours long and you feel every <laughs> punishing second of those two and a half hours and this is raid on entebbe may have been a mistake and, may have been a mistake yeah who could blame me look at this fucking cast yeah, no, to, to be the, fair the, the cast, cast is, is stellar really it's it's unbelievable uh so you've got uh <laughs> charles bronson you got yafik kato john saxon uh Really Robert Loja, Robert Loja, James Woods yeah. for a second just pops up out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Pretty solid. All the guys you want are here. And I don't know. It's, it's weird, though, because you'd think with a cast like this, you'd really lean into him. You know, oh, you got Peter fucking Finch. Let's have him pop off and just like let him go crazy for 20 minutes. Charles Bronson. I want to see him absolutely cap some motherfuckers in the head. But no, that's not what we get. 
if you recognize an actor in this movie, chances are they're just sitting down and talking and not really doing anything. Uh, this is a very I, weird film where uh, Charles Bronson is standing around speaking into a radio while James Woods is out in the field firing an Uzi. <laughs> it is the opposite of what you would expect. And, you know, it is called Raid on Entebbe, so you would think the, the titular raid would be the focus, wherein uh, it is actually only about 10 minutes or so, the final 10 minutes or so, you get a little bit of raiding. Uh, but, yeah, this is based on the true story of what happened at the Entebbe airport in Uganda. This was in, in 1976, I believe, or, or 75, 76. And it, over, over the 4th of July weekend, Palestinians uh, took control of a jet, an Air France jet, uh, heading to Israel. They rerouted it to Uganda, Entebbe Airport, and they basically uh, demanded the release of, I think it was like 39 Palestinian prisoners, and then they would give up the hostages. And yeah, that's, that's the big story. And instead of negotiating for the hostages, Israel sent a crack team of soldiers into Uganda and shot the shit out of a bunch of people. Right. Um, which, yeah. uh, I guess the framework here is it doesn't know what it wants. It wants to cover every fucking thing about it. You know, at, at first you're like, Oh, it's going to be about the hijacking. Uh, no, not really. No. Uh, it, it's just about people sitting in a room for the most part, our various rooms. Uh, and then, yeah, you, again, you might think it would be about the raid. There's also, a lot of odd, like late film focus on uh, uh, Yanni Netanyahu, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, uh, who is the only person who was killed in this raid. Uh, I mean, of the the only Israeli soldiers. soldier, yeah, yes, who was killed. Mm -hmm. uh, so you might think, well, you know, if we're going with that route, especially considering, uh, we, you know, these things tend to be pro-Israel uh, propaganda at, at some level, and this certainly is. But you might think. We're going to build it around Yanni, make him the sort of hero of, of this event and focus it on him. But no, no. Uh, Irvin Kirshner directed this, by the way, uh, which, again, another reason why you might go, oh, that'd be interesting. But uh, no, no, oh, no. Yeah. What you'd say is he decided to focus not on uh, any particular character, not on Yafikoto's Idi Amin, not on uh, Yanni Netanyahu. He decided to focus on everything and nothing. Yeah, the mm -hmm. whole, the whole film has the feeling really of of reportage, and I suppose like what's notable about the film is that this was released what like less than a year after the actual raid took place. Like this, I think they like almost a four or five month turnaround. I think on this thing, they just like put it together quick. So this was like current affairs ripped from the headlines, kind of a TV movie. It was, I think, it was edited slightly and released uh internationally yeah. and some other in some other uh venues as as just a theatrical movie but like th this is what the movie was it, it's a rip from the headlines current affairs kind of like how did they do it you know because obviously the the raid from the israeli side was <clears throat> incredibly daring uh kind of uh you know very bravura kind of military tactics against the evil baddie kidnappers and so on and so forth and depending on your own politics you know which honestly who wants to get mired in that we're just a dumb podcast but uh, it's it's kind of like that's what the movie wants to do it wants to capture a little bit of everything and like adam says mm -hmm. it, the, the result is a movie that covers an enormous amount of ground without really giving much insight into anything other than that 
the raid was relatively successful, which you would have known from reading the newspapers the next day, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I'm glad that you brought up the timeline, because I think that is what informs this film more than anything else. You know, you're, you're watching, you go, okay, well, it's a made-for-TV movie, and they were given probably a three-hour slot, so you have two and a half hours of movie, so it has to be a certain length. And this happened 4th of July, 1976, and there were three movies, two TV movies, and a theatrically released movie. And the first one came out December 13th, 1976, and that was Victory at Entebbe, which is a, a totally different made-for-TV movie. With an Although, equally ridiculous fucking cast. That oh might be God, the higher fucking pro uh, prestige of the two. It was directed yeah, Linda by... Linda Blair? Directed Kurt by Douglas? Noam Chomsky's cousin. With with Anthony Hopkins, Linda Blair, Burt Lancaster, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Dreyfuss, and Kurt Douglas. Jesus Everyone Christ. wanted yeah. in on the, the Israel train here. I mean, you know, this is the so, ultimate good versus yeah, evil I, tale. And I suppose it's worth noting as well that we talk about how this must have been rushed, and, and yet it was uh, handily beat to uh, <laughs> to the airwaves by Victory Ed in Tepe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so Victory comes out on the 13th of December, and then... Uh, a little over a month later, uh, actually three weeks later, I'm sorry, so mid-January now, this is when we get uh, Raid on Entebbe, which is the movie we're talking about now, and then on January 27th, there is another movie released, uh, this one called Operation Thunderbolt, which is a, a Globus and Colin, like, pre-canon films movie. Yeah, that this was is, somehow, like, proper Israeli, I think, like, yeah. Yeah, it's somehow nominated for the, uh, like, Best Foreign Picture Oscar. It has Sybil Danning in it. Yeah, Sybil Danning and Klaus <laughs> Kinski. <laughs> yeah. I think the so, proper way to do this, and good thing I did not settle on this, would, would have been to split this podcast between the, the last three films we're going to touch on and... And then do a second episode on these Entebbe movies, but right, that, just, we but just have an episode much. called Pod on Entebbe, where we it, it really, <laughs> uh, if any, if all of these resemble Raid on Entebbe, which I got to imagine they probably do in many ways, just because of the format they were released in largely, then that would be maybe one of the most miserable podcasts we've ever done. So thankfully, we <laughs> yeah, didn't I can't go even that imagine. Route. Yeah. Okay. So back to Raid on Entebbe. Let's let's create our timeline here. So this happens over the 4th of July weekend. So let's say, uh, you know, all, all of the executives come back from their long weekend. They happen to read the paper and they're like, wow, that was fucking crazy. So a week later, they call a meeting. They go, OK, time to make a movie. You have less than five months to do this. So why does the film feel like it's a first draft? Because it undoubtedly is like this was just like we have to fill the correct number of pages with enough information to fill a movie essentially and whatever the outcome of that is fucking fine the rest of the time seems to have been spent on who's not busy right now and can commit to this and then if you're wondering why so many of these acclaimed actors in this film feel like they're reading from cue cards I can assure you that it's probably because they were. Charles Bronson is just looking off into fucking space, reading whatever <laughs> somebody holds up in front of him, and is not doing anything approaching acting. Uh, the only person, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but Yafit Kato as Idi Amin is just popping the fuck off. He's great. Uh, but I, I want to go back just to the idea of what this script is, because there's a scene that I think fucking nails it for me. 
And it's right after the plane is hijacked and we're introduced to like the Israeli soldier people for the first time. And let me make sure this is playing right. Um, hold on, guys. This is really great. I just want to make sure that you guys can actually hear it because it's going to go on my recording, but I don't know if you can hear it. Anyways, here is a scene where basically someone shouts what's going on in the plot who the major players are, who he is, and how he feels about it. It sounds like this. Our own people haven't heard a recognizable transmission in over an hour. But worst of all is that I, the Minister of Transportation, State of Israel, can't get our friends, the French, to tell us one word about what's going on. Upset! You're damned right I'm upset! Our own... Oh. So did you, you, were you guys able to hear yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, no, and that's a great that's reminder great. of what this film is about, because I've mostly forgotten it at this point. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's just, I am the Minister of Defense. That is my title. I'm not happy, and no one is telling me anything. That, I mean, this For is the whole fucking... <laughs> Let's tell the people, yeah. you know. We got to really illustrate. <laughs> I got to. I got to say, now, what what surprises me about the movie is that, like, honestly, in, in its rush, I think to get everything in, it's it's surprisingly not as one sided as I thought it would be. Uh, it's still quite one sided, but I don't know. There's there's a strange, almost like it, it almost forgets to take sides. It has to get everything down so quickly. Yeah, yeah. It, it which <laughs> it almost makes it more interesting that way, but it does feel very just completely haphazard and accidental. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you will frequently get with a film that, it, you know, goes from nothing to debuting on television in five months is there's not a lot of space for second takes or time to kind of take a step back and go, huh, was that weird at all? So this scene from early on during the hijacking actually stuck out to me. So I'm going to I'm going to play it for you guys. Uh, this is when a woman like faints on the plane and this happens. This woman is sick. Don't speak! Oh, this woman needs help. She's pregnant. Curtis, bring oxygen immediately. Get moving. You, get moving to the back of the plane. Go on. Man, that's what it sounds like when you're pregnant, you know? Just, uh, <laughs> I love it when I'm pregnant. Well, we're in the oh, early I mean, stages of pregnancy. The very, very early moments of pregnancy. That's exactly what it's <laughs> Maybe she was getting pregnant at that point. Who knows? <laughs> This woman is getting pregnant. <laughs> well, we have a totally different. We have the porn parody of of Rado and Tebe, which who knows? Yeah. Maybe that's out there too. I wouldn't be entirely what's, surprised. What's that old woman choking on in this? <laughs> upset. Uh, You're damned right. I'm upset. Uh, that's the whole movie. <laughs> and I wish. I wish. Yeah. This is. If only. This is. A, a, it's and it's it's interesting because I mean, like I would say, Irvin Kershner's direction on this is actually pretty admirably tight. There's and there's a few shots in this that actually you know have an idea to them, and you know, like I I particularly like that Edi Amin is introduced with not him walking in, but all the cameras and lights trained on him as the people like, are filming mm -hmm. him walking in, so we get the immediate sense of, like, he's self-aggrandizing, which, you know, fits the character. You know, there, there's some clever things in here, but generally speaking, yeah, this is absolutely, it's like, it's a two-and-a-half-hour-long fucking bottle episode TV thing. Like, it's just, everyone's there, they've got to, like, run through their lines to get it through, and then, like, 
out the door again. It's like almost like, you know, something else needs to be filmed on this airplane in three hours. Let's go. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the, the airport. I don't know what Entebbe airport looks like, but this airport looks like a, an empty office room somewhere. <laughs> um, it's like there's nothing in it. I have no idea. No. Um, yeah, no. it, it's just it's. God, like, honestly, it is, I can understand within the context, I guess there's less news and less media back in the 1970s, but, you know, I mean, going, you know, tuning into your TV to learn about all this, I suppose it makes some kind of sense, but to play it mm-hmm. for entertainment at all, like, this, it's just not an entertaining movie, it's not in any way kind of, no. like, and even, I like, and like I say, I think it's kind of curious how almost even-handed kind of it is, obviously the terrorists are treated, described as terrorists and just, all these shots of the concerned-looking Israeli hostages, that means obviously you're going to, you know, side with them, clearly, and, you know, that's that's fair, I think, within the context. Hijacking planes is, you know, it's risky business and it's not cool, the subjects that are being being handled here. But there's really no, there's no background information on it, it all kind of occurs in a vacuum, but since they, they kind of rush through it so much, there isn't really a sense of anything. I mean, towards the end of it, it's kind of curious that one of the, the terrorists for the Palestinian Liberation Front has the opportunity to deploy a grenade and kill a bunch of hostages, which, you know, everyone's warned about. That's what they'll do. They're cold-blooded, ma- you know, monsters. And instead, he he doesn't. He, you know, stands mm. up with his gun for a last stand and gets gunned down, you know, quickly by the, by the invading commandos. But it's kind of that strange thing that, like, humanizes him where nothing else in the movie has humanized him. And I don't know what it means to have that in there other than to kind of balance things out and maybe deflect a little bit of this is Israeli state propaganda, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, I mean, maybe, but like, I don't think anyone's claiming this particularly, like now, certainly, it's, it, you know, it's sort of strange watching this 50 years on, because it's really, it's a time capsule, but it's like, it's a really, it's like, it's like finding a time capsule that's buried 50 years ago, and you're like, whoa, this is going to be so interesting, and you open up, and it's like a shopping list for like milk and eggs, and it's like, oh, I guess yeah. people still ate those back then. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not a very yeah. interesting time capsule. Well, and then kind of piggybacking on that idea of how they just randomly humanize the Palestinians and then don't do anything else in the film to do that. This is a movie that, even though it's set up in a way where it's just like, here, let me just run through and explain this entire news story that you probably read about five months ago without really getting into anything of substance. But then you've got Yafikado as Idi Amin. And if I didn't know that Idi Amin, you know, massacred a quarter of a million people, I'd be like, this guy's fucking great. Like, <laughs> he's, he's a brilliant character. I mean, this is always yeah. the issue uh, yeah. with Idi Amin. He's, he was a brilliant character. He's the actor. Like, honestly, I don't understand. All the actors are like, oh, I want to play the Joker. Everyone should be fighting to play Idi Amin in a movie because mm-hmm. it's the, the perfect character. Because, yeah, he's. You know, I'm no no expert in Idi Amin, and some people claim some of it was put on to kind of diffuse international perspectives on his own very apparent crimes nationally. But, you know, mm-hmm. he is this incredibly compelling, buffoonish psychopath in, in a way that's really, you know, I mean, God, for an actor, there's a lot to chew on, and Kato is fantastic. I mean, the only time this movie is in any way, like, gonna avert your eyes to it and make you pay attention is when Kato's on the screen. As soon as he disappears, the movie just slumps back dead again. Oh, yeah. And at one point, because he's like, he pops up three different times with three different fun outfits, and he (laughs) just busts in and he says a bunch of awesome shit. And he's just like, I'm gonna feed you. I fucking love you guys. Enjoy Uganda. Like, he's just, you know, he's like a tour guide. And you're getting all hyped up. 
and uh yeah and then and then he just disappears you're like what the fuck well, especially because the energy his last appearance out. they're like oh the, the palestinians are losing control i mean it's just taking over this operation you're like all right yeah let's get it yeah i can't wait time and then it's like no he's not in the movie at all not a single scene yeah. after that <laughs> yeah and Idi Amin has the best like do, do you know the, his full title like oh yeah that's lord of the fish of the sea and birds in the Fuck sky yeah. and shit yeah i mean yeah far- his his excellency president for life field marshal al hadij dr Idi Amin, vc dsomc lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas and conqueror of the british empire in africa in general and uganda in particular <laughs> that's his full fucking title that rocks yeah yeah i mean See, incredible it's it's just a yeah. shame he was a mass murderer that's just mm-hmm. yeah Right, but as a character in a film, oh, yeah. a mass murderer, that could be compelling. And that is, uh, yeah, the thing I'm writing, uh, this was reaffirming in that sense, because uh, I'm trying to get rid of all these uh, audience analogs in, in such a movie and just approach it from the perspective of the most compelling character. And if this movie were just fucking idiot mean tap dancing around uh, for two and a half yes. hours, God bless. Uh, it'd be a lot more fun to fucking watch. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's affirming to my approach, at least. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's yeah. worth noting. I mean, like, it, I mean, in this, and I think it's it's played very well. Arcado fully understands it, is essentially have this very suave, inviting, personable character, but this underlying menace, obviously, to everything, which is very apparent in the fact that, like, he plays himself off as being, you know, the, the impartial negotiator facilitator, but it's like they landed in Uganda for a reason. It was because he's okay with this and so on. Like, it's it's... You know, he's he's more involved in this than he would like to admit. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's it's really well played to have this character that is tremendously alluring and interesting to watch, but also is very clearly completely unpredictable. And Kodo captures that without him getting the opportunity to do much because he just really is just in the abandoned warehouse set. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. he he communicates the unpredictability. He communicates the stakes. The entire film should have just been about him. And just let Cotto just do whatever the fuck he wanted. That would have been a much, much better movie than watching, you know, 20 very famous people kind of go through the motions. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, a a classic case of the idea behind the existence of all these movies and these absurd casts is it's it's far better just to read about these movies than it is to actually watch them, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, At least in the case of, of Raid and Raid, by all accounts, is usually it seems to be preferred to to victory at Entebbe by most people. So I can staggering because this is this is just a, a wretched movie to watch at this stage in in our history. Like it's just it's miserable. It makes it, there's it, like no narrative at all. But essentially, this it's structureless. It's just you're watching the news and it's fucking horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's and, and it's like, well, especially oh, go ahead, and, go ahead. And just say like I, I don't understand the audience perspective on it because like beyond it just being reported like a dry recounting of things that happened. I mean, if you were you know if you're politically engaged and interested in the situation that unfolded, you won't get any information here. If you're looking for like an action-packed exploitation, like I don't give a shit about the politics. I just want like you know running and gunning. You won't get that here. Like it's it's just there's nothing really here to latch onto except for the concept of like. I want to see a bunch of people make a movie technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And-, and the crazy thing is, is this is like, this is the golden age of made for television movies, uh, particularly like late 1960s up through the early 1980s. So pre cable, 
which there's there's like more produced in in the cable television era. But in terms of like water cooler discussion, like just eyeballs on the screen, uh, like this is when you could get 50, 60 million people watching fucking Radon and Tebe or whatever. I think I they needed to like crack the code that they should hand them a two hour time slot and not a three hour time slot because Jesus yeah, Christ. Can you imagine been, the water cooler conversations when people arguing, you know, what they would have done if they hijacked a plane full of people and went to Africa versus people going like, oh, I, I wouldn't have lost <laughs> any soldiers. I'll tell you what no. I would have done if I were on that plane. You know, oh, I could imagine some amazing discussions coming out of this one. Dude, that's my favorite post 9-11 like, discussion point. Not enough people are talking about this. Like, I want a full fucking list of all the people that were like, if I was on that plane, I would have fucking stopped that's it. it. I know Mark Wahlberg's on that yeah, list. Yeah, I know Mark uh, Wahlberg was Chris brave Jericho. enough to put himself on the list. But yeah, a lot of other cowards out there aren't willing to put their head up over the over the, the parakeet and, and let, you know, let everyone know what they would have done. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if Jack describes this as a bottle episode, uh, it's important to recognize that a bottle episode might function because there's like four characters in the bottle, not four fucking hundred. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's approximation. Just, <laughs> this it's problematic. Uh, this structure, I'll say, and yeah, it's it's just man, I, I'm disappointed by it. I, I wanted some exploitation, but uh, I got nothing. I just got a lot of boring bullshit. Mm. Well, how about we jump backwards in time and uh, jump to another part of Africa? Let's talk about Dark of the Sun from 1968. Uh, if I wanted some exploitation, here we go, baby. Oh, oh. shit. Yeah, this, oh, this movie. What the fuck? Like, they're not made to make, make movies like this in 1968. This is <laughs> yeah, supposed to come later. the fuck off. <laughs> it's so good. And I think, I think the reason it works is it's got the classic dad war film structure, which is, like, just dudes on a mission, right? Um, and then on top of that, it's got a weird like grindhouse sensibility to it in how it showcases its violence and how violence is enacted. And then it's, it's also like deeply steeped in the racism of the classic Western as well. So you get a lot of grimy shit going on all at once. There's a fucking Nazi and he's on the good guys team for a while. And he fights someone with a chainsaw and almost gets his face run over by a train. It's incredible stuff. That's a and cheat in these movies, I've found. There's the same thing in Antebe, I guess, is that uh, that is how they get away with humanizing the Palestinian terrorists is because the really bad guys, they're Germans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. true, yeah, one of the main Palestinian liberation people are, are all, actually several of them, yeah, they're all German, they're part of the German wing, which I mean, I guess is historically mm -hmm. factor. They were stuck with it, but you know, yeah. you're right. Well, that's <laughs> interesting. in these movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this takes place, uh, basically, this is my, my quick rundown of, of what time period this is and what the fuck people are doing there. So uh, Congo, they had a democratically elected president after they were annexed by, like, I think the Dutch, if I'm not mistaken. And what happened was, uh, oh, no, he was Soviet-backed and a commie and a lefty. So... What's what's the classic American move slash classic global Western move? You got to get rid of that guy. So he gets booted out and then they put in a, you know, a, a more Western friendly leader. And then all of the people who supported the original president, they become these these Simba rebels. And basically Congo is 
you know, various states of destabilization for decades following this, uh, to the point where even though the Simbas were technically defeated, heavy finger quotes in like, you know, the 1970s, uh, they still continued to operate in pockets through the 1990s. So, uh, great job, classic American move, just fuck shit up, whatever. So in this case, in this particular movie, uh, the new Western-backed president, uh, they, he, his Western allies are threatening to pull funding for his little war effort unless he can pony up some cash. And if you're in Africa and you need cash fast, what do you do? Get those blood diamonds, baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's, so basically, uh, he hires a mercenary, Captain Curry, and also Jim Brown, a famous running back slash actor. To put together a team of dudes, including a uh, vicious Nazi man, to take a fucking train full of soldiers to get these diamonds and also maybe rescue a few people. And wouldn't you know, things don't go so hot, and uh, raping and pillaging and explosions and chainsaw fights ensue. And it's great. It's it's like a perfect dad war movie that is... Uh, I mean, I don't even know if it's perfect. If it's perfect. <laughs> My dad's dad movie, not this mean. I gotta say. Yeah, yeah, no. Because like the, the theme. I, of you most, guys see a meaner dad. I, that's <laughs> the theme of most of these movies. Like it's you know, no man left behind. You know, like it's tough out there. War is hell, but we fight together. And th this is the every man left behind war movie. Like this is just fucking yeah. bleak nasty <laughs> terrorist kind of like like and oh. you know i mean like you say they team up with a nazi who at one point guns down two children and then they carry yeah. on like the, the, <laughs> our our hero is a little bit annoyed and he he does he tussles with the nazi over that and then they're like no you can't kill him because he's on our side for this mission you know and that's that's the movie and then just everyone gets mm -hmm. murdered in horrible ways and kind of everyone just keeps going on it's it's an incredibly bleak vision and and at the same time it's also still it, it for its bleakness it doesn't really broaden the lens on the actual situation it's basically piggybacking off i this isn't based no. on a true story you know this is just kind of within the context of africa as a unforgiving hellscape of for no apparent reason uh, you know which is a whole genre of of uh, european film and politics uh this mm -hmm. is um you know, but but it's like it's just, it's just remarkably nasty uh, in every facet of it. Point. I mean, there's there's the key scene we'll discuss where where the Simbas attack the village and kind of run rampant across it, and they did have to make cuts to that for content. You know, there's this all kinds of killing and raping and stuff happening. So what they do is they just leave these like little flash cuts of it in. They couldn't leave in whole scenes. But the ending is like it's like fucking Event Horizon. Like, it's like these glimpses of hell cutting through into this movie. It's actually, I would suspect, far more jarring than actually if they'd left the full unedited effect. It feels mm -hmm. almost, you know, ahead of its time in the way that it intercuts these, like, just incredibly charged, horrific scenes and, and like, inferences. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've just, I don't think I've ever seen another movie really quite like this coming from particularly the English-speaking world, which was much more... A you know, aware of winning wars and not dwelling yeah. on the horror of it all. Um, the, but this one is very much just all the horror all the time and over mm. Luger. Like, it's it's bankrupt morally and philosophy kind of quite openly. I, I think there's actually a, a run of, uh, maybe not this bleak, but similarly bleak uh, <laughs> colonial movies 
during the 1970s, particularly I think of Zulu Dawn. So Zulu is the one where they, you know, it's all God save the queen and like, a, you know, 50 soldiers defeat a whole army. Uh, but Zulu Dawn is the one where it's just like, oh, uh, the the because of British hubris, they're completely overrun by the savages, and and everyone is just completely fucking brutally murdered, including like a bunch of missionaries and a bunch of people. And it just it's the entire movie is people going like, boy, this doesn't look great, and then <laughs> maximum carnage with a super super fucking downer of an ending. Um, I mean, unless you're you know hashtag Team Zulu, which of course I am. So actually, it's it's kind of kind of great, but. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it, the idea that they show the Simbas in this, uh, just kind of like the Zulus in Zulu and Zulu Dawn, is it, it's more of like a, a faceless, uh, otherworldly mass yeah. of, of just savage killing. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think that bleakness is sort of associated with some of this colonial and post-colonial kind of exploitation. Although, to your point, typically the, the dudes on a mission dad war movie it is, it's, it's all about the boys. And while this is about the boys, because at any moment, Rob Taylor and Jim Brown could kiss and we're kind of waiting for it to happen. Uh, it's just, I don't know. You, you, you never have that complete camaraderie, mostly because Rod Taylor is so closed off and we just want to see the real him. I want him to walk down the stairs at the party so I can take off Rod Taylor's glasses and tell him how pretty he is, but he's not ready to hear that. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's a wild thing. This and Jim Brown, surprisingly, like I don't think of him as a a real actor per se. You know, he's he's a guy you put in for some spice. But yeah, I think he's quite excellent here. But it's just, yeah, I don't know what Cardiff was up to with this fucking thing. You know, because he's he's most known as a cinematographer, and he actually shot African Queen. And he wondered something stuck in his craw at some point because this movie, you you can feel the the fact that it was sort of futzed with in post. Like, I, I think there's something really strange about the, uh, the very back end of this with the Nazis, like going on a jaunty fucking raft ride down river with this fucking music. It's like yeah, the, the final fight between Curry and the Nazi is like a, every single shot appears to be from a completely different location. It's yeah. completely disjointed. It's totally wild. I'm like, did this get, is this like just hatcheted to shit or was this the intent? Cause the tone changes and it's very bizarre. Cause this guy's just fucking stabbed one of the main characters and it's just like blood uh, vengeance uh, has taken over the film. And it's at this point where all of a sudden things almost lighten up and you're like, what the <laughs> fuck is happening? Like, did, did, was true. this a note? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it definitely feels towards the end of it because essentially in the end, it's like, cause, cause they didn't kill the Nazi when he killed the children, which I suppose, aside from the fact they already, he, literally he's introduced with a swastika on his shirt and the guy's like, put that away. It makes me uncomfortable. It's still going to work with them. So they bring the Nazi along, but he doesn't have the swastika. He just keeps it in his pocket rather than on his shirt. Nazi then kills Don't some... look like a Nazi. You can still act like yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Don't look so, like one. So then he murders some children, and they're like, I don't like that. That seems like a problem. But you know what? We're on a mission. Let's go. And it keeps going. And then the Nazis actually turns out he actually a bad dude, not really trustworthy, and he, he kills uh, our hero's friend. And so our hero must gain vengeance against him. And it, it is this very strange conclusion, because in the end... Like, the major turn at the end is he does gain vengeance. Uh, Colonel Curry successfully kills one Nazi and many, many thousand Africans. 
Uh, and then he submits himself, I guess, to the law of the nation. He doesn't like just take off into the sunset with the with the pretty blonde. Um, he he just he he's like, no, put me in handcuffs. I'll stand trial for what I've done here. And it's this very goofy kind of like like it feels like a very late attempt to put some kind of moral structure on a film that genuinely just seems to be like a, just a howl from hell. Um, yeah. which is not not a very common studio produced film to just be like everything's fucking worse than you could possibly imagine and there's no way out that's not usually the message that comes out of uh, classic studio films even in the 60s no. when things are breaking down they're kind of like maybe it, no it's uh, things are tricky but they can get better you just have to believe in yourself it's like no not this movie this movie is basically you sold everyone down the river and the river is red with blood now uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Now this feels more Italian than it does it really, American yeah. studio film. Yeah, yeah it's really say, got that. Uh, Ozploitation too. I, I can see a lot of that in here. It's just like this sort of really fucking <laughs> desolate, just grim shit. I'm like, man, alive. Yeah. And there's there's some stuff too that it just really sticks out, especially uh, after they they get the diamonds, which is delayed, and instead of choosing to save a bunch of innocent people, they're like, nah, I gotta wait for these diamonds. So they wait for the diamonds and then there's all this like slaughter. And, you know, we mentioned just the, the little quick bursts of, of violence you see in, in women being assaulted. And you're like, holy shit. But there's another scene too, where they, they come back to an overturned train cart where all these people were and it's just fucking bodies everywhere. And they're sort of lit up by the, the glow of the burning buildings and, and fires that the Simbas had set, and you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. There's just like 50 <laughs> bodies yeah. that they're just creeping around. It is, it is real fucking bleak, man. Yeah, and the uh, scene yeah, where they do ass. almost, where, where they decide not to kill, uh, Jim Brown basically like saves the Nazi, but Rod Taylor's like fucking literally gonna have a train run over his neck. <laughs> it's just like, it's just intense from start to finish. It, 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 well, I guess maybe mm -hmm. not quite to finish, because all of a sudden there's a weird left turn where it's like, well, he's got to, we got to have an honorable protagonist and the Nazis got to get kind of goofy and fucking have some sort of weird chase down a river. And yeah, again, it does feel noted. Like, I think this is kind of a compromised movie, but I don't care. I can see what, what the intent was. And Jesus, it's impressive in its nastiness. It's a strange mm -hmm. one because I think because um, Jim Brown reportedly didn't like the film and he you know he he felt because he he said officially like, he he thought they were making a political film and I I see his point because he doesn't it's this is not a movie that meaningfully addresses anything specific in Africa or really has any really it doesn't even have anything to tell you about Africa it's just kind of a film that just leans into this concept of just this utter political just desolate wasteland and frankly that that's kind of a political read all of its own uh it's not often you see a film that just so freely leans into the concept of just a complete uh you know nietzschean will to power land where basically whoever has the bigger gun is is basically running the rules on everything that happens men women children just absolutely just dispatched left right and center for fun um just absolute chaos throughout you know, so, I mean, if it feels a little bit because of, I suppose, where there's kind of this unspecified black mass of, you know, kind of enemy combatants they're facing off against that aren't particularly contextualized. 
you know, there's there's kind of an uneasy relationship within it on some levels, depending on how you want to read it politically. There's also an enormous amount of white people murdered too. So, you know, in a way it's equal opportunity slaughterhouse. Um, I could see people maybe saying, you know, I wish you did a little bit more on that. I can understand Jim Brown's concerns about this being, you know, a, a black person kind of telling this story and being involved with it, that it feels a little bit, you know, kind of dismissive maybe, or, or doesn't kind of link in with that as much as he might have liked. But it is, it is genuinely impressive to see a film that just gives so much voice to just absolute, like, I, I mean, ultimately you're going to know it's like Africa something happened here and it's a lot of white people showing up in this movie that don't that aren't from here none of them are from africa uh you know and and that i th i think there is that element on one level of you know looking back on it now you can look and say like yeah this is a pretty politically engaged film on that level of just being kind of leaning into just absolute nihilism or you know acknowledging yeah. the nihilism at the heart of it a lot of other ones don't do that they kind of you know they find honorable heroes or kind of audience surrogates to carry you through this movie finds them and then just fucking murders them in front of you mm -hmm. over and over again yeah it's a yeah. political film in in that it's engaged with sort of a, a broad psychology of man and <laughs> misdeed but it's not a political film in in any sort of specificity for sure like it's just kind of like yeah I, I i mean we could describe uh the actual events in which this is loosely uh transcribing i mean it's not based on actual events but it's based on broad generalities of of the country and uh, it doesn't say anything about any of that like you know really the fact that it's set here is used thematically and not used to really say anything in particular about anyone's actions in the region beyond well yeah i don't know <laughs> uh humans not so great <laughs> it's a clusterfuck yeah. it's a pickle i do love that this is based on a book because it's it's based on like the the classic pulp like british war adventure novel where uh there's no four-letter words because that would be improper but there's tons of graphic depictions of violence and sexual assault so yeah uh it's, it's uh it's, it's, yeah i don't know I, this this movie though again it's bleak as fuck but uh, maybe it's just because I watched Raid on Antebe first but I I really enjoy this it's just a, it's it's a fun fucking ride oh I think it rules I think it's great and I and again for what this the purpose of this podcast is uh, broadly on my end yeah this is a touchstone piece frankly mm -hmm. well uh, let's get to something that's maybe a little bit more explicit about its politics so. <laughs> Here's a classic case of movie I did not know existed until you said we had to watch it this week, Myros. Even though you look at it, you go, how the fuck did I not know that this existed? <laughs> so the Wilby Conspiracy, uh, 1975, Sidney Poitier and uh, Michael Caine. And, you know, you would think, oh, well, that's what is like an Oscar movie or something. No, no. Uh, that would be the Defiant Ones, which he, Sidney actually won a Oscar for. and this kind of on its surface level is hey what if what if the defiant ones but it's it's apartheid south africa and it, it gets to be a little bit more than that it kind of morphs into like a dryly funny buddy on the run adventure movie yeah it's like midnight run except with a serious political message 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I think the overall message is if if you are involved in radical politics in any way, shape, or form or organizing, there are people that you associate with because they are useful and not because you personally enjoy their company. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the big takeaway. But goddamn, this starts off with a bang because it's like uh Michael Caine and his girlfriend uh get Shaq Twala, who is this uh radical uh South African native rebel who is trying to basically, you know, help get the fucking British out of South Africa and they get him out of prison. But then they immediately they run into some cops who they then beat the fuck out of before going on the run. I was like, OK, this is going to fucking rule. And unfortunately, there's not more uh, cop beatings, really. Um, But I, I don't know. It's it's just it's Michael Caden and Sidney Poitier have good energy together they're just fun to watch on screen yeah no. and so it, it just it just kind of works it's just a good fucking ride yeah, no I, I really i really enjoyed this one and this is not a film that was really on my way radar either and i gotta admit honestly i've not seen a lot of sydney poitier's films and i really should rectify that because every time i do see one i'm like that he's fucking good <laughs> you know? this guy's got something yeah, going here really yeah <laughs> they should give him an oscar or something but um yeah it, this is um i think again kind of a, a really successful integration of politics into a kind of body template uh the humor in it it sometimes is a little bit quippy it feels a little bit like light-handed compared to what they're they're dealing with but i was continually impressed with where this film would go in terms of how much it leaned into the ideas of betrayal and you know kind of the stakes of you know uh, what you'd say organized resistance and so on how you know one weak link an entire chains completely evaporate and so on and how there's you know, and, and those weak links come about from, frankly, everyone basically has to live in terror and secret and hide everything. And then, you know, one person just, you know, a sniff of money or of freedom or of, you know, the police mm -hmm. getting off their back. You know, it's, you know, real things that would absolutely change their lives or their loved ones' lives. Of course, they they turn on people, you know, and then yeah. and, and politically in the, in the just in the context of when the movie was made, it it feels a little soft now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh considering this was 1975 like apartheid was something that wasn't just talked about you know pre like nelson mandela it wasn't like a regular part of the news cycle and it was seen broadly as like more of a, a serious like lefty critique as opposed to something that was a part of like mainstream uh political discussions and then on top of that it also addresses the fact that well oh you know the the british uh they they you know What's well, the Dutch Afrikaans, I suppose, this is rather than the British, yeah, yeah. I suppose, within the South African context. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, basically, it's it's annexed its its own comp its own country years prior to when this movie is taking place. But then, it, functionally, it didn't like w just like actually work as its own country with a president with actual power until the early 1980s. So it does a good job of that too, where it has all these like you know, non-South African white European people in the background that are sort of pulling the strings of power. And then you've got these South African white guys that are just trying to track down Michael Caine and uh, Sidney Poitier. And so you've got all these different layers and it actually addresses that, which I think at the time that probably seemed a, a lot more radical than it, it does right now because you're just like oh what the fuck like yeah i mean i think i'm but, what impressed me honestly i think is they they really lean into the the africans intelligence officers being just real nasty pieces of work oh, um, like, like, and yeah. honestly it's kind of like 
because I'm pretty sure by 75, I'm pretty, the US was still, I think, happily supporting South Africa. They had no issues with apartheid at that point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until like really the 90s was when it started to tip over. Nelson Mandela was a terrorist as far as the US was concerned. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of impressive how this movie that really calls out, you know, and, and it's not just like they're they're just frothing them out like bad people. Like they, they openly espouse you know, white supremacist notions in very clear language that runs contrary to what the audience is seeing. And when you have someone like Poitier, you know, scrambling for this and that, I mean, they, they are, you know, we, we have the, one of the main bad guys talk about how, you know, yes, this is a country of like, whatever, 20 million blacks and 3 million whites, and we built the country and we're not going, you know, it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's history made us you know, have to build a country, it's not our fault, and we're not going to give it up, and all this bullshit that you read on Twitter all the time now, um, you know, and it's like, I mean, that's kind of sad too, as you'd watch this, and there'd be a bunch of people nowadays who'd quite happily, uh, you know, nod their head along with this, and like, he's making some good points, when he absolutely isn't, it's kind of impressive to see it being laid out as nakedly and baldly here, to kind of forward a political message, um, on top of being a pretty, you know, kind of charismatic, well-worked, body ad- action adventure movie uh, you know i i think it, it tempers the darkness really really well i actually you know this is a, a movie i think would be kind of cool to see it you know more widely also you know i think it, it plays forward because like i was struck by a line from Sidney poitier in this film at one point where he says you know in a police state the police are always busy and it just, just struck me <laughs> as like oh that seems like the kind of thing you could start graffitiing around the u.s right now and might get a couple of people nodding their heads along you know uh, yeah. It seems mm-hmm. seems like one of those things that's like an interesting way of looking at it. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's I think, kind of punches above its weight, maybe, in terms of even as, like, a well-intentioned film of its time. I think it carries, it carries itself very, very well. I was, I was impressed by this one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting look at power dynamics and this sort of, like, tenuous nature of, of white power or elite power. Uh, which is timeless, you know, frankly, it, it's projected on Africa, but it's, it's certainly timeless. Uh, it's, it's never untrue that there's, you know, a hundred uh, poor for every rich. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, we allow that, you know, the poor allow the rich to exist. And that's essentially what's happening here. But you also see the, the other side of it where it's just almost unfathomable in, in its exaggeration of, uh, how ubiquitous and almost omnipotent the police state is where you know like the diamonds being a perfect analog here where it's just like they're going through all this trouble to recover these things from the sinkhole and the cops are just like oh no we we stole those back years ago <laughs> like the fucking minute he threw them down there we just went down and got them and it's just like oh. <laughs> yeah there's this hopelessness to it even though it feels like okay, yeah, Africa is going to be all right because look, look how many of them there are to take back this land from these fucking monstrous Dutch, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, monstrous whatever European nation has uh, occupied uh, whatever given country we're discussing. You, you do in have Africa. a selection depending yeah. on on geography. Yeah, could be French, yeah. could be Spanish, could be English, could be uh, Dutch. You know, uh, Belgians. Big yeah. shout out to the Belgians yeah, in this yeah, one. Sure. Oh yeah, you know, just the 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 full United Nations of colonizers, just all. Yeah, and, and, and that, you know, unfortunately, America's a little too new to have been in on this game, but we've we've done our share elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and we still managed to some different times. angles. We still managed to somehow <laughs> butt our nose in there uh, on occasion. 
Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I, America prefers to fuck around in like Central America. Yes. That's more our. Speed. Yeah, you get into the Western Hemisphere, then you only have to point the finger in one direction. It's just America and America and America and America. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it is just a really interesting look at, at those dynamics of sort of numbers versus information in a way, and the tenuous grasp of power that is perhaps been never better illustrated than in sort of the post-colonial era but uh yeah it's not limited to that it's it's a very prescient message even now and uh yeah i i think it's it's a really entertaining film uh maybe a little less relevant for what i'm going for but uh admirable nonetheless it's it's a it was a good movie also, was a scene where Sidney Poitier bangs someone in a dentist closet. So that's yeah, cool. yeah, that's pretty dope. Yeah, you know, you're not and gonna get that in also, defiant ones. You you get yeah, you get that sex scene which just rocks and uh, pops up out of nowhere, and you're like, very cool. And then shit, you get Michael Caine here, who the whole time is complaining, he's like, I don't want to be part of this rebellion. I can't believe I'm here. And then you know, by the end, he's tossing a woman down a sinkhole. He's fucking. Uh, putting a gun to the dome of a of a South African officer and just blowing his fucking brains yeah. out. Um, he's he's going he's going full Che Guevara on this shit, and we fucking love it. There should be a so, sequel, yeah, where Michael Caine just turns into a full on fucking African Avenger. Yeah. Also, <laughs> fucking Rutger Hauer shows up towards the end, and he's just like a pretty little rich boy pussy, and. It's great. You never get to see Rucker Howard be this soft and this young. And I, I, you yeah, know, this, this is still, this is around the time. I mean, what, this would have been just a year or two after Soldier of Orange. I mean, where Rucker Howard was like mm -hmm. the biggest actor in Holland, but, um, pretty much, yeah, no major profile internationally that I, I can think of at that time. Certainly, you know, years ahead of like Blade Runner and The Hitcher in his 80s run, you know, that, that really cemented his, his image in the West, uh, or rather, the American English speaking country, but yeah, he's, he's great here. It's a slimy, you know, kind of asshole Afrikaans guy who's sort of like roped into help and kind of has to, because he's got some skeletons in his closet and, and you know, I mean, ultimately that's the movie. Everyone has some skeletons in their closet and it just depends on how interested the South African security team are in those skeletons and whether or not you should cooperate with this person or that person. It's, um, I mean, mm -hmm. even the sex scene is interesting, even though, you know, it kind of comes out of nowhere, but based on, later developments about the character that he's, he's having sex with, who turns out to, you know, spoiler alert, but, you know, who double-crosses them. This is a film of double-crosses of, you know, the will-be conspiracy, effectively, is that the entire thing turns out to kind of be a MacGuffin for basically a large-scale government operation to tra to capture one guy. Like, the entire, yeah. you know, successive series of double-crosses and victories and sleights of hand that Poitier and Kane successfully managed to keep ahead of the game it turns out that no they, they've just been allowed to do all yeah, that because they're, they're not, leading they're not us ahead of the game for a single fucking second no, in no this they, they have yeah they, they don't even realize the game that they've been playing from step one it's you know and that absolutely is like a really kind of like nasty kind of an edge to the film uh you know but it, even these elements like the sex scene become interesting in terms of you know what happens later on is someone sold out the the black African movement, you know, but still, you know, had sex with someone in a closet. There's still that kind of exoticism, that, you know, kind of like interplay of things that's, uh, you know, there's just a lot kind of roped in and brought in here. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. And Michael Caine then as the kind of like 
basically clueless kind of, uh, you know, impartial guy who gets roped into it and by the end of it is, is a hardline, you know, advocate for, for African rights. Um, yeah, I, I think there's kind of a call to action within it. It's, it's, this is, I'm kind of a little shocked I've never really heard this film come up before. This is one I would definitely be kind of recommending to people down the line. Uh, and you can right now watch it on Tubi for free, so... Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you should. Shout out Tubi. Oh, love Tubi. Yeah, yeah I, I would say you uh, should as well. I mean, and even like, it's worth a couple watches because it's, it's got that interplay of like things you might take at face value, especially from a Western perspective where, you know, you're saying, well, this is a post-colonial movie uh, to an extent. And, and when Podia is initially like, the charges are dropped against him. They're like, uh, they, it seems like the state is, is doing well by him. And then you kind of go back and you're like, no, yeah. absolutely not. Like, even from the very start, it was just like, we're going to release this guy so we can use him to go kill the Nelson Mandela analog. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of nice that you like you. Yeah, I found myself toward, you know, somewhere in the middle of the movie, like backtracking, like what led to all this and realizing it all goes back to him being, you know, kind of surprisingly released for, you know, not being tried. Right. And going like, oh, that mm-hmm. was the first thing they did. Like, that was the. You know, it, it, it has that element to it of kind of like that structure that comes back. It's like, oh, none of this, like this whole thing was, was a puppet thing, you know, yeah, kind yeah, of being It's being like not accidental they were stopped on the street, not, not accidentally was released, was not an act of altruism. It was just every step of the way, a uh, fucking vicious plan. And if I, I might prefer personally Dark of the Sun just because it's, it's more my speed, uh, this fucking nasty bullshit, but, uh, this is a better movie, I think. It's also, it doesn't, ha- it, it works in the opposite way where if I, I think Dark of the Sun probably petered out a little bit to the end and uh, acquiesced what it was trying to do, uh, this is enough cachet as like a more prestigious sort of film where it it builds the entire way and the ending of this is fucking incredible. <laughs> like, th- yeah. it's a fantastic mm-hmm. fucking scene with the, the village rising up against this helicopter and pulling it out of the sky and yeah, and Kane just both of, the both guys of these movies. Yeah, but both of these movies end honestly with the kind of energy of like a Jess Franco women in prison movie. Oh yeah, which you know, which <laughs> yes. studio like movies with money should never end with that kind of like nihilistic, like holy shit, that's terrifying energy. And yet both of like Dark of the Sun and the Will mm-hmm. Be Conspiracy both kind of end on that note, and it's like. Did like did the producers just not know what was happening? Was this like political activism, like for real? Like it's it's kind of strange to see such well apportioned movies taking these kind of steps. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish well, they and, would I, uh, all the time. You know, if oh, geez, can you imagine the Oscars if if this was the kind of fucking movie that would get like oh it's an Oscar <laughs> it's an Oscar bait like they blow some fucking South African policemen's heads off. Like, come on! <laughs> yeah, saying something, doing something. Let's you know, let's honor these films, Hollywood. Yeah. Well, and so to your point, this is uh, this is on Tubi. Will be conspiracies on Tubi. Also, I think Kino put out a Blu-ray of it, and then Dark of the Sun. I think there's a, a Warner Archive version of it. So uh, get that one if you can, because I I don't know. Warner Archive is so fucked up. That's got to be the. T- it's like simultaneously the best and worst way to obtain movies from a certain era because you know that they'll run those like four for 40 sales all the time but then when they're not it's just like fucking gouging because they're all printed on demand so 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Warner Archive, maybe fuck it, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, there's one more movie that we watched here, and by we, I mean, I didn't get around to this one because you guys said it was fucking terrible, so I just said, I'm sitting at the fuck out. It's not fuck terrible. You. It's not. Ray Dunn is terrible. This is okay. This is just, yeah, this is just okay. This is like middling to kind of boring dad, but this is the real dad movie. Yeah, this like, is the real dad You know, shit? Dark of the Sun is not a dad movie. Your dad would be like, I don't like the cut of these guys' jib, and he'd turn it off. No, the the wild geese. This is dad core. This is now. I abstained from watching this because I know, as a child, I definitely absorbed this via osmosis from my dad watching. Yeah. It, oh, so. I, this you could put this on repeat. Fathers love this stuff, which is good. And I think that I think Entebbe probably has the same energy because there's so many of these movies that are like this where. I just remember my dad falling asleep in a recliner while one of these movies was on. Like, <laughs> this is so. This is basically James Bond, but as like African, you know, Mission Impossible, but kind of. And again, it's another one of these movies that just like hedges its bets and like we're not really racist, but it's all quite racist throughout. <laughs> um, and but like the theme for this. On, week. Yeah, no, honestly, like the Wild Geese is incredible because it's like it's it tempers like well, I know you know. Race is a very fraught topic on this, so we better be careful. So let's just put in a flaming gay man and make fun of him for the entire movie. That should take the heat off, and that's exactly what they do, and it's it's a remarkable thing. Uh, yeah, this, this is basically old old men uh, kind of past it. Uh, Richard Burton, uh, Richard Harris, Roger Moore, who, you know, just around the time he was stepping into the James Bond role, which he was already considered too old for, and then he'd make more of them than anyone else. Um, basically stepping in as commandos, mercenaries hired to, to rescue some people from the middle of Africa in a daring raid. Uh, and they, they come up with it uh, very confusing because Richard Harris is in this movie and one of the characters is named Sean Finn, but that turns out to be Roger Moore's character, which I never would have mm. guessed. That was the biggest <laughs> twist in the whole movie for me. It's like they have an Irish actor, but he's not playing Sean Finn. That's absolutely insane to me. But yeah, it's it's a whole big, you know, kind of like, Big mission to Africa, gotta kill, uh, literally this one scene, this movie where they just, they just gas 200 African soldiers in, in their, yeah. in their sleep. Which is and nuts, because like what's a, the tenor, like, before they go to Africa, the tenor's almost like a, a rat pack thing, like an Ocean's Eleven yeah. sort of, we're getting the gang together, we gotta get the perfect people for this, this fucking tough job, and they're getting them together to... Uh, sneak into a barracks where 200 African soldiers are sleeping and gas them with cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Again, I say this is a dad court, but I feel like some some fathers were taught a bit at that, you know, you know, having, you know, done their oh, bit in the I service. Dads fucking love war crimes. They, Again, you guys, you guys had pussies for dads. Look, My look, dad was war all about crimes, war crimes. For sure, but they should be standing <laughs> on their feet when you kill them for no reason. That's, <laughs> yeah. you know, we gotta have Look them in the eyes when you shoot them in the head. Exactly. I like the only, the only person who has any compunction with this fucking plan is the racist South African. <laughs> He's like, I don't know if we should be doing this cyanide plan. Guys are like, no, we're doing it. Fucking fuck up. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That part is insane. Yes, Especially so. from this era. Oh my God. It's just like, yeah, you're South African and you're white. So you're the most racist man alive and you just won a gold medal in the domestic violence Olympics. Congratulations. That's like every single fucking dude from that era. <laughs> it's, it, there are some choices here for sure. We also have early on in this film, Richard Harris doing like a kind of like a black guy accent. This is in England though. <laughs> uh, where, where they basically, they're, they're trying to find Roger Moore's character. He's in hiding. 
So they kind of know he's like, they know where his girlfriend is. She works as like a croupier or whatever at like this casino. And so they come in, we're just pretending to be some drunken assholes and cause a scene, but they're really trying to, you know, get the table to themselves. And Richard Harris, as part of this, just speaks this weird jive thing. I don't know what the hell he's doing. I don't know what it's representative of, but it's very uncomfortable. I didn't enjoy that scene. <laughs> I didn't uh, catch up on the racial uh, connotations with that, but... I, I trust they probably do exist and I'm just ignorant to them, but I, yeah, this movie is just bonkers because, well, A, it's way too long because TV shit, I think, uh, and it might not be a TV movie. No, no, this, this was, this was a, I'm pretty sure this was theatrical oh, release. I think this, I, yeah, I think mm-hmm. this came from like a prestige perspective. Like it's got like top bill talent. I think this is just like, you want to spend more time with Richard Burton, right? So we'll just fucking dawdle for ages. <laughs> because this long. is like two hours, 20 minutes long. Like, it yeah. is- I do love spending time with Richard Burton. I don't I know. I mean, the first <laughs> half of this is like quite a bit of fun, but then once they've successfully executed their operation and get stranded, it really bogs down. And once again, it this is weird because it's a dad war movie and Yet, it seems like every one of these fucking things can't help but, like, spiral into a black morass of fucking doom. Like, what the their whole thing is like, even after they get stranded because the evil bankers make a deal with your African dictator here, it, it's essentially the, their aim is to get out another Nelson Mandela analog here. And, I, again, it, it's a dad movie. You're, you're kind of expecting one thing, and then it's just like, no, no, Nelson Mandela analog just dies and uh so does like half all the wild geese die pretty much too except for uh richard burton and roger moore uh yeah everyone's just fucking dead it's just like oh well i guess they got out but uh just these two guys <laughs> to give actually to give a good sense of just the dad coreness of this movie richard harris is supposed to be like he he originally doesn't want to do the plan because he just wants to he's a single father and he just wants to be you know do right by his little tiny drama school child um who's god he's an annoying character but i think that's just because he's english um but it's it's this kind of like character thing he's he's supposed to be like the moral compass of the film for a large part and yet he's introduced basically saying he loves his son a lot but he really he couldn't spend more than like three weeks with him at a time so he put him in boarding school <laughs> this is fucking wild kind of yes. like and he's also line. the one who's masturbated to this cyanide <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he's well, yeah, because because like it's really he's like no, I don't want to do it. I want to just go skiing with my child on Christmas holiday and show him a wonderful time because I love him very much. I'm too old for this. And then it's kind of like no, but it'll it'll require some logistics and you'll get to do some stuff. And then he's like, oh, sign me up. Wait, okay, cyanide gas, fantastic. Let's go. <laughs> it, it absolutely insane. And like you say, yes, the South African character who pretty much is seems by far and away most racially aware, along with the the black leader that they're rescuing uh, they uh, all of the the racial politics are like filtered through them becoming kind of not exactly friends but gaining some kind of mutual understanding and uh, that's like kind of the, the entire film is laundered through that to make it seem like it's about something yeah uh, I mean, which you is know very richard uncomfortable is doomed because he makes richard burton his fucking godfather and that's like the only avenue for character growth for Richard Burton's like, well, I guess he's going to get stuck with this kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's fine. That's what boarding schools are for. You know, oh, look after my kid. It's like, fine. Yeah, I'll like, let him stay in my house two weeks a year and ship him off to the sexual abuse farm. Otherwise, where he can learn to play rugby. And, uh, you know, it's it's an English tradition. So, I mean, fair play <laughs> to them. 
But yeah, it, this this movie is it, the problem with this movie. Frankly, is it's not enough of anything. It's it's ver- got a lot of Bond uh, cast, like John Glenn. I think is an assistant director on this. Morris Binder does the the credits. You know, he's obviously like the main Bond uh, credit role guy. Ooh, you know, the, best this, <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, uh, God, I love the outline of Africa with all the nations marked out by barbed wire. Just oh, such this a fucking terrible with this bleeding song. Like fucking oh Jesus, the song is awful. Who's, who's the guy who does the song? Like John Armstrong or something? I don't know. He must have been like famous at the time because he gets a photo credit. They do like at the end of this movie because it's so long. They're like fuck it, we'll just keep making it. John so they do, like Arma Trading. That's the name of this. Arma, Arma Trading. Yeah, Arma. and and so the end. Credit credits has like you know photo pictures of all the main cast and john john armatrading gets his own photo up there for the theme tune which i've never seen happen before and the song is god awful it's this weird dirgy ballad about the wild geese i don't know how that fits in with it i don't think anyone even in the film refers to them as the wild geese or anything they're just a bunch of Guys, I think uh, there's like a scene where the computer's running through. It's the similar scene in Radon and Tebe that that says something about wild geese. But oh, I don't maybe, maybe, maybe. So there might have been, you know. Very but, like, my, my ultimate, my ultimate issue, and Steve will say, yeah, we wouldn't particularly recommend this to you, is because it is it's two and a mm-hmm. quarter hours long. It's got some goofy asides in this, like the flaming homosexual man who's like, "We'll we'll make fun of you, but we ultimately respect you because you can wield a machine gun." Um, you know, and you got various other elements, but like, it's very stock action. It's very much just shots of men firing machine guns, and then we set off an explosive somewhere, and a couple of stuntmen jump in different directions, and it kind of just, mm-hmm. it's very dull on that front. There's nothing much to it. Uh, you know, I mean, this, the cast, obviously, there's incredible talent there. But frankly, they're mostly just look a little bit world weary and just kind of like stare at the camera and kind of go like, is this what war is? Uh, You know, war is great until, you know, you get left behind. And it's kind of like, yeah, I think, okay, sorry, or you you did this for money. So, you know, (laughs) which is why I I conversely probably would recommend this just because I think it's goddamn insane where it's it's not a war movie. It's a movie about fucking cold blooded mercenary assholes who all appear to be 70 years old, even though the movie seems to insist on telling me they're like 42. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, it, that could just be England and, and, you know, maybe people age horribly there, especially in the seventies. But, uh, yes, it's, I, I don't know. It, I'm supposed to care about these fucking monstrous mercenaries, uh, who entirely fail at their mission and also attempt to start a civil war in Africa. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the get out clause morally is that the the guy that they're rescuing is so like he's so, like a Christ figure to the Africans, which is how Richard Harris's character gets brought in. He's like, I'm not going to do it. And they're like, no, but this one dude, he's so important. And he's like, yes, I must do it now. I will gas all of the children. And it's yeah. like this whole kind of like that's their get out of jail clause for basically making a movie yes about mercenaries doing stuff for money and they still get the guy killed <laughs> yes and yeah and he still gets shot and he dies and he has a weak heart as well you know uh, it's yeah a weird film about the futility of war but also it's great if you get back home because you get get a bunch of money so um yeah a lot to learn from the wild geese i suppose on that front yeah i don't know it's uh it, 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 this is a really strange movie to me i i'd recommend it just because it's a pretty uh even though it's too long, it is like 
pretty breezy. Like it's it's not the slog that. Uh, oh, it's very it's very yeah. I mean, it's it's a very well made film. You know, it's got it's yeah. got that expertise behind it. But it is it has the feeling of like the the stateliness of a James Bond movie, but with none of the like wink. Uh, it's just it's very much like here's an old British dude doing harm abroad. But uh, without without the little like kind of nudge and wink that makes James Bond kind of like fly when you know when it's working, um, yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's while Keese is kind of like just the the kind of like tap down kind of like a straightforward racist version of that. Right. I, I guess what's strange is just how uh, how the film exists tonally to me. Like it's got this sort of you know classic fifties war movie. Like we're we're hearing the fucking marching bands blaring and. Everything's just gung ho, uh, and again, especially in the first half of this movie, the tone to me is fucking insane. Where, yeah, they're they're just this war march sort of rah rah stuff is just accompanying them sneaking through a back fence in a country they don't belong in to gas sleeping men. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck is this? And the gassing the sleeping <laughs> men is almost played for comedy. They're like cooing at them to sit up so they'll breathe in the poison gases yeah. better like while they're you know half asleep it, yeah really demented. bizarre scene <laughs> you know yeah it's like kind of documenting a fucking war crime but playing the benny hill theme over it it's it's <laughs> really wild yeah well i think we should probably wrap things up so uh yeah thank you for putting us back on our post-colonial bullshit adam myros was a real treat today if you enjoyed this podcast do us a favor. There's a link in the description that'll take you to our Patreon. And if you get to our Patreon, why you can give us money. And why would you want to give us money? Well, first of all, you get access to an entire back catalog of uh, old written and recorded optimism vaccine content that is Patreon exclusive. Can't get it anywhere else. Plus new Patreon exclusive episodes. Uh, also, if you live in the continental United States, Sorry to all our friends in South Africa that were listening today. I will send you a movie from my personal collection. So uh, who knows? You could maybe going to get uh, Leprechaun in the Hood 2 on VHS. That's, that's an option. That could happen to you. I got one from a, from a fucking Goodwill thrift store. So yeah, anything could happen. Also, if you want to give us more money, let's say you want to upgrade to that $5 tier. And why would you want to do something like that? Well, that... Gives you access to a fabulous poll where we occasionally ask our listeners, hey, what do you want the next episode to be? And those five and above patrons get to vote. Uh, you don't pay, you don't get a vote. Uh, that's, that's the way it should be, right, Jack? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, you want, <laughs> you want to become a civilian, you got, you got to pay. In a, in a free and fair society. Get into you gotta, service, you buddy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, uh, you can vote for upcoming episodes, which is always fun. Uh, we just did one not too long ago. And also, you get your name read out on air as a special boy or girl who supports us at a higher level. Myros, who are five and above people? This we week? have David, CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. God bless each and every one of them. Now, if you want to be a real special boy or girl, what you can do is you can donate... $25. And for $25, you get to choose any topic you want for an episode. It's all yours. You get it. How exciting is that for you? It's probably really exciting. We've done a few of them. I think it's been some of the more interesting stuff we've covered on the show, which shows how valuable, valuable we are, which is to say not at all. 
You guys are better at picking topics than we are sometimes. What, you think they're more the interesting than Ray Dunn and Tebe? <laughs> just a little bit. To be fair, most just, of the things we pick, we know they're going to be bad. Yeah. We just do it anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll just, like, uh, we'll, we'll try and hype up our audience for this episode. We'll have Colin, like, cut the fucking, the Yapikado Radon and Tebe footage to just, like, I don't know, fucking little John turned down for what, and we'll just fucking crank it up. People get hype. And, uh, yeah, we can talk about our favorite two-and-a-half-hour-long, boring slog of a movie. Anyways, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, corrections on uh, my complete lack of historical knowledge outside of (laughs) very surface-level readings of the situations discussed on this episode, email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or uh, you can tweet at us, uh, or blue sky us, or x us, or whatever the fuck you want to do, at optimismvaccine, we're available there, too. And with that, we will be back next week. It's the start of Sean-tober slash uh, Sean's Halloween Spooktacular. What do, what do we prefer for the naming convention here? Any thoughts? It's Sean-tober. It's always been Sean-tober. Sean-tober. I know. Sometimes you got to rebrand, you know, to breathe life into it. But yeah, Sean-tober. Sean-tober starts next week. We got some real good shit and some real not so good shit. We're taking him to Florida, baby. Yeah, we're finally taking that little bitch to Florida. He can fucking adjust his glasses. Uh, there's no fucking Fred Wiseman down there. It's That's Len Wiseman country as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.